I'm sick of it. I'm sick of that. I'm sick of this. Of what? Health. Health. I'm sick of health. Sick of health. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Sick of Health. We are joined, as always, by Rob Littlewood and Dr. David Wright. Greetings. Hello. Are we well, chaps? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Great, yeah, really great. Lovely to be back. Looking forward to it. And uh, aside from the lovely pleasantries that we always go through, we realised prior to this episode that there's obviously a little jingle that you all hear before the episode starts with some questionable audio, from the, which will explain that as the first recording we ever did where we got interrupted, which we might cut based on our expert <laughs> advice from our audio team that are here with us today again. Shout out, Chris, Dead, uh, Dead Ready Productions. Um, but uh, at the end of it kicks in a beautiful, angelic, goddess-like voice. Do you want to try it? It was your voice, wasn't it? <laughs> Don't make it. <laughs> Sick. Sir. No, I'm not doing it. Nah. And then, uh, so her name is Ella Rothwell, artist named Rothwell. And she's a friend from uni, but is making a name, making waves within the music industry. So massive thank you to her for recording that for our little podcast. We basically, we wanted to wait until we were big time enough uh, before we announced her so that we could help, you know, elevate her, her singing career to our levels. I think if we had some of her listeners, she shouts out us to one of her songs, be a bit more. Thank you, Ella. A massive fan of Velvet Heart. Great song. Yeah. But honestly, check her out. Spotify. World class. Anyway, thank you, Ella. Right, let's get down to business, as we do so well on the Sick of Health podcast. So we, I think the last podcast, uh, alcohol, very interesting, quite light-hearted. Mm-hmm. We're going to dive a bit deeper this time, I will pre-warn you. So what we want to talk about this time is immunotherapy, immunotherapy within cancer. Mm-hmm. I want to start, as we often do, with Rob. Does that mean anything to you? If it does, what's your perception of it? Very limited, I'm afraid, guys. It is a word that I've read, (laughs) a word (laughs) that I've heard, but I'm not even going to bother trying to blag what I think immunotherapy is. Fair. Mm. And I think that's pretty common, depending on... Obviously, if you've been affected by the disease or you're associated with work within the disease, whatever it may be. But we hope to shed some light on that. But basically, right now, uh, public impression-wise, if we start with that, so they, I don't know if you noticed this, but they announced a Nobel Prize Mm. and it went to two researchers who were involved in immunotherapy. Did you hear this? I think I did, actually. Yeah. It was quite, I mean, it was fairly main uh, news. Nobel was September, I yeah, think. It's probably yeah, probably yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm not particularly clear on it, yeah. But yeah, the Nobel Prize went to these two professors, James Allison and then a, a Japanese researcher. Oh, go on then, have a go. Tasuku Hono, Honojo, Hono something like that. Anyway, I know exactly who talking about. went to those guys. <laughs> and basically, uh, at the moment, within the cancer field, immunotherapy is huge it's kind of overrunning across different cancer types so liver lung skin it's unusually it's covering Mm. it's broad it's really broad there's a few it doesn't work in but it generates broad making big waves within cancer and kind of not upsetting because it's a positive thing 
but changing a lot disrupting. of the standard practice, disrupting, disrupting. Um, and in terms of the publicly, I think if you, if you give it a quick Google, the kind of general media impression, rightly or wrongly so, is really positive. Things like words like miracle, they used a lot. Words like cure, which certainly in metastatic cancer has never really been a thing used before. The end of cancer, terms like that, really positive, strong really, really strong claims. Because current therapies have been so bad and you just, you don't get a lot from them. So yeah, it's, it's great when you get something new coming in. And you can, I mean, media interpretation is obviously up for judgment, yeah. but really positive thing. And we've got a good story to kick us off to kind of illustrate this cure point specifically. So there was a, um, I don't know if you will have seen this, probably not. There was a woman um, called Holly Kitchen um, and she put out a video. She had uh, metastatic breast cancer. So quickly, metastatic. So that means when it's kind of spread from the original tumor site. So it's going to different places in oh, your body. Right. So you have an, ori an originating tumor, as it yeah. were, and there's a development of the disease, but it's break off. And that kind of means it's getting more serious. So yeah, you have, there's two different gradings of cancer. One of them is that, and yeah. If it's metastatic, it's not good news. It's, yeah, it's generally speaking, a death sentence. So pretty harsh. Okay, so there's this woman in Holly Kitchen and she, 2013, she's got metastatic breast cancer and she puts out this video and it's kind of done in the, um, you know, in Love Actually where the bloke goes up to Keira Knightley's door and he has the, um, puts the piece of paper out but he doesn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, it's done like that. Um, it's kind of, I think she's playing on the like, you don't need to say anything but speak out kind of thing. Mm. And she's basically, her standout message and she says it pretty emotionally and forcefully bearing in mind how she's doing it, that there's no cure. There's no hope for my disease, there's no cure. I will never, ever, ever, she says, ever, ever, ever be rid of this disease until my time on this earth is done, which is pretty intense stuff. Yeah, that's rough, yeah. But the take home message of in this situation, no cure for her disease. But then the flip side of this story is that three years later, to the day, which is a really nice little touch for the story, mm. but there's three years to the day, a different woman, we should add by this point, Holly Kitchen herself has died. Mm. That's the reality of the disease. But three years to the day, a girl called Judy Perkins, also with metastatic breast cancer, she's basically gone for a year of exhausting a dozen treatments, I think it was. So she's trying everything, nothing's really working for her. Bearing in mind with that disease, you've got limited time anyway. Um, she then goes to do this as a patient advocate, goes to do this. She was meant to do this talk at an event. She almost wasn't going to go. She did go. And there she met this professor who told us about his clinical trial for immunotherapy. And so she started it. And after having a death sentence and disease that there's no cure for, mm. within six weeks, uh, so the metastasis, the metastatic sites, in her liver, or half the size, and then a year on, the tumors are completely gone, and to this day wow. they, and to this day they haven't come back. That's just incredible. Which, in yeah. that, as shown by the video three years before, is it's beyond your wildest dreams yeah, of what you'd expect. Yeah, it's it's crazy, crazy. It's amazing. It's yeah. as the media stories were saying, miracle, yeah. cure, end of cancer, that kind of thing. 
What is it? <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly where we'll go. We'll have it obviously flipped David for a little bit of scientific update on immunotherapy before we dive back in. Yeah, so well, I guess before immunotherapy, go real basic, immune system. So that's your kind of body's defense to anything that's uh, it shouldn't be in your body and it's this way of attacking it. So things like bacteria, viruses, fungal infections, it's how it attacks it and there's two different types. There's uh, the innate system, which is kind of almost every living organism has a type of this thing and it's just very blunt immediate attack on a foreign object and you have your adaptive immune system which only kind of more highly evolved organisms have and it takes a bit more time but it's got a memory to it and it's more precise so it's all to do with that system and so immunotherapy is basically I saw it in one paper it was described as weaponizing your immune system so it's kind of taking that approach and making it attack cancer cells so basically your immune system, when it finds something, it locks onto it and then it starts kind of um, multiplying all your cells, your white blood cells, and then attacking it. And then to stop it kind of going into overload, it has these self-regulating um, yeah, self um, functions. So it kind of puts a break on it so it doesn't cause harm to your own body. So it's got this break system but some cancers have adapted and mutated so that they can just hit this break button on your white blood cells and stop them from attacking them so they basically found this cheat system to get away from your body and just hit the break and then just switch them off so what this immunotherapy is doing is basically masking that break button so the cancer cells can't hit the break so they can just keep going and carry on attacking it so it's basically just giving your own immune system a better boost rather than current therapies, which is radiation and chemotherapies, it's just a blanket attack, just mm. hitting anything that's dividing fast, which includes hair cells as well and all kinds of other cells that then in the GI tract, your stomach and things. So that's why you get all the side effects of losing hair, nausea and everything. So this is, rather than just being a blanket attack, it's just it's boosting your system that's already in place and making it carry on attacking the cancer, which it should be doing anyway. But the key, the key, I guess, is that it's, you're using your own body to fight a disease rather than what's been used before, which is called the, the cut, burn, and poison technique, which is surgery, trying to cut it out, which is still kind of the number one option if you can, but obviously if it metastasizes to different sites, that's oh, not really an option. Yeah, it depends where it is. So you've got cut out, burn uh, is radiotherapy. So you're firing beams of radiotherapy and to try and kill cells, but everything in front, behind to the side gets hit. Yeah. Or chemotherapy, poison, where you're putting poison in the body and it just targets any cells that replicate quickly. Hence you lose hair cells, etc., etc. Whereas this, they call it the beautiful care because all you're doing is taking the brakes off your own immune system to let it attack the cancer, mm. and it's specific is the okay. key. Um, and I think there's, I mean, from what we've said, the, what we've talked about, miracle, miracle cures, specific, everything we've said so far is very positive. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, 
and it can be seen as a miracle cure, but what we want to kind of bring to discussion and want to look at is that perception of miracle cure versus a bit of reality, I guess. Because if you look at it, it is a wonder drug, but only for a small amount of people. And this is what you miss with anecdotal evidence through the media and bits and pieces like that, is it's very much, it'll be kind of what they talk about is low response rates, which is the percentage of people who will respond to the drug versus other treatments, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and then you have uh, systemic therapy as well, which is just drugs targeting other receptors, I guess. Um, and it's, if you've got low response, so the response in immunotherapy is about 10%. This is a cross indication, so it's very average, 10%, yeah. whereas other treatments, 30%, really averagely speaking. Yeah, so you get great results, but it happens in very few people. Right. But the duration of response, so the time that that drug is effective for, is a hell of a lot longer, which is why it can be called a cure. So the thing is with cancer, metastatic cancer, is you're often talking, you're distinguishing jug, drugs by their effectiveness by months. It's pretty brutal in that sense. Yeah, so like chemotherapy, radiotherapy, it works for a lot more people, but it might increase your life expectancy from five months to seven months or something once you've been diagnosed. So it's, it's marginal gains, but it works for a lot of people, but obviously there's all the side effects as well. Whereas this, yeah, it's fewer people, but it can really, really work for these fewer people. Exactly. And I think the other thing to consider is the side effects and negative effects. Mm -hmm. Because one, we're saying it's a lot more specific, which it means it should have less side effects. But there are some side effects, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's quite a few people it happens in, so I think it's around 50%, and they can be fairly serious as well. And unlike traditional um, cancer therapies where it's kind of quite immediate, these can happen from either immediate or they can happen a year after you finish the therapy because it's all it's a little bit unknown, it's still kind of a new thing. And yeah, they can be still quite serious, so you can get skin problems and GI problems, problems with your liver, lung, eyes, like almost every single organ. But the general consensus is that if you stop it for a little while, if you get in these whilst it's happening, then the side effects can get a bit better and it doesn't have too much effect on the outcomes. So they're kind of manageable, but they're just a lot more unpredictable. And the other thing is that there's a, there's a, I don't want to touch on this too much because there's not much research in it, but there's a thing called hyperprogression where it's seen in some instances that people who take immunotherapy, there's a small percent who respond really well, and then there's a small percent who go the complete opposite direction. Yeah, so you give the drug and the cancer advances even more. Oh my God. Yeah, so it's the complete That's opposite such effect. A giant risk. So, yeah. yeah, so this is the argument we're building up right, is if you're a patient, we'll do from the patient's point of view at the moment, are you thinking, and obviously it's up to your oncologist and your doctor to give you advice and make a decision, but mm. are you thinking, I want to take a risk for the small chance of a cure or less of a risk and possibly have an effect, but it's only going to extend my life a few months. Like, that's an intense decision. Yeah. But the kind of decision people are having to make. And then there's the other thing which doesn't affect the patient per se is the cost. 
mm. and doesn't affect us necessarily because we live in the UK, we're fortunate, we've got the NHS, but the costs affect the NHS's decisions and whether they can fund the drug or give a license to the drug in the UK so the NHS can use it. Mm. We've got things like the, drink, uh, the Cancer Drugs Fund, which really help with that. Mm -hmm. Then cancer, but it still makes it a difficult decision. And in terms of immunotherapies, just again, really average numbers because it's very different per drug, per cancer type you're talking about. But this is just the drug cost, not anything else. Immunotherapy is roughly $100,000 per patient. Um, whereas chemotherapy, for example, is up to, so that's if you're having numerous cycles of it, about $30,000. Okay. Huge difference. So, I mean, one, they're both staggeringly expensive anyway. Yeah. And two, huge difference. I mean, any thoughts on what we said so far? Anything that doesn't make sense? No, it all makes perfect sense. I mean, my instant thoughts really are just the pure risks involved with this. And on top of that, you know, the funding for it. So this woman you talk about who's had this miracle story... Where did she get the money to do it? I assume someone would have said, if we agree to cover this, are you willing to take the risk? But then even so, like the likelihood of actually working is so slim that mm. she's fortunate beyond belief that you know, it was, am I right in saying, sorry if I remember correctly, there's more or less a one in 10 chance that it would have worked for her. Did you say it was 10%? Yeah, is that right? and that's a broad average. Yeah, and then there's a broad average of between four and thirty percent ish of getting this hyper progression where it makes it even worse. Mm. So that's yes, right. So it's right. probably even more likely it's gonna make it worse and it's most likely to not do anything. Yeah. I mean the the evidence for the hyper progression thing at the moment is Yeah, it's uh, here let's not read too much into that one yet. Because yeah. this is all very current. But you're, but you're a patient, you want a well-rounded view on, on what you're dealing with. So that's the kind of thing you're gonna to need to hear, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I should point out that, so the um, Judy story told earlier was a clinical trial. So she wouldn't have had to pay for that mm. because I guess you could say she's doing the drugs company a favor in that they have to go through these clinical trials okay. to get their drug yeah. through. But obviously there's possible chances for her. But in the UK, we don't pay for drugs anyway to our yeah. UK listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, when you're researching this, there's a lot of stories that come up about the US and obviously they have to get their insurance companies mm. to try and pay for yeah. it and it's the battles with that where there's little evidence people have real struggles mm. which mm. I mean that's a whole other side of the coin mm. will be a little bit UK focused here apologies global listeners <laughs> <laughs> massive but otherwise massive US uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> otherwise it turns into a, a whole other debate but the other thing we want to get into is try and put ourselves in the doctor's shoes a little bit because the other side of the coin is given the perception that perhaps the media is portraying given these few anecdotal cases that immunotherapy can cure you of this disease mm. a lot of i say a lot yeah, there are definitely cases of patients and in this day and age where patients see a lot more, there's a lot more on the internet, you can research a lot more. As soon as you get that diagnosis, there's a lot of data that patients go straight on the internet and they're looking everything up, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. um, so patients are going to their oncologist going like, I want this immunotherapy, kind of demanding it, even if there's 
not necessarily evidence for it in their cancer type. Right. There's the chance of getting this cure. Exactly. And so a few little uh, stats, interestingly, one of them is, this is real, this is real hot off the press stuff, because there's a international medical conference, cancer conference this weekend, ASCO GU, which is American Society of Clinical Oncology for Genitourinary Cancers. We'll brush over that because uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, that's a tongue twister. Exactly. Yeah. But basically, there's this really interesting uh, paper that they've kind of released some of the results for, and it's looking at patients' expectations of immunotherapy treatment. Okay. And so the interesting pullout from it is that 25% of patients included within this, it was like a survey, um, believed, despite significant, despite very good kind of, they've been told all about the therapy, the chances, everything, 25% of them still believe they have an 80 to 100% chance of a cure, which given everything we've just said, pretty unlikely, unfortunately. But the really interesting point, I think, is that those 25% who believe they have that chance of a cure have much higher scores in terms of emotional well-being and quality of life. So that hope, I think you could I call suppose, it, yeah. um, is giving them a better life. I mean, God knows the power of hope. You're never going to be able to quantify that. But it's obviously giving them some sort of hope. And there are, as I say, trials and data that look at hope and the effect that has on treatment. And quite a lot of it, actually. They've looked at it in quite a lot of detail. Basically, summary of the findings is that hope is inversely associated with major symptoms. I imagine if you look into those trials in a lot of detail, there'd be lots of things you can pick out. Mm. But you can kind of appreciate the point. Yeah. It's a known effect in science, the placebo effect, where if you yeah. think you're giving, getting a medication or something, the power of the mind to kind of feel better despite nothing... Pharmacolo pharmacologically happening, you still get a beneficial effect. So, yeah, it's powerful. So, yeah, so the, the point I guess we're getting at is that patients, one, have this, uh, I say, well, not all of them, a lot of them have this belief that immunotherapy is going to cure their disease. And that hope in itself is a powerful thing. So, do you want to dispel that hope? And then the other thing, there's a, this patient advocate did a survey with other patients. Uh, oncology patients kind of asking them about it was risk taking in terms of treatment mm -hmm. so 78% of patients said they're willing to try a treatment even if there's no guarantee of it helping which I think is understandable um, and then 67% said they prefer to have a doctor who's willing to take risks which I think is an interesting one mm. and then 50 this is the kind of the most interesting for me they were asked, are you willing to participate in a clinical trial that has not been successful in other patients? 58% still said yes. Well, what those three stats tell me is the desperation these parent patients have. That there's really not many good options. They're willing to have a drug which hasn't worked in the majority of people. They want doctors to take risks and they're willing to try treatments that has no guarantee. I wouldn't interpret it as desperation, personally. I would probably interpret it... I, I probably do interpret it more as a kind of screw-it mentality. Like, this is where I'm at. Mm. Let's take some risks and let's do it, rather than 
please, I'll take absolutely anything. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's how I perceive it. And I think, rightly or wrongly, I mean, I think it's a good thing, but again, the portrayal of cancer, whether it's media or whoever it is, is very much a, a battle. That language is used all the time. Mm. It's a battle against cancer. That kind of terminology which lends itself to those answers, right? Mm. But the question I guess we're leading to is if you're a doctor, so we're going to put you in the doctor's shoes here, Rob. Pretend you're a <laughs> medical oncologist for a second, just for the question. And um, if you're an oncologist and I, you know, I'm a patient, I've got an aggressive metastatic cancer like we've been talking about, um, and, and perhaps I've seen these news articles and reports, and I, I come in saying, I've had the diagnosis, I come in and I'm, I want this immunotherapy. Um, I believe it's going to cure me. Mm. Um, you know in this cancer type, there's not necessarily evidence for it, but you also know what we've talked about. So there's low response rates, but there's a very, very small chance it could be a cure. You also know there's other treatments that are very well researched that could help them. For a little bit in the short term. Mm. And there's also the small chance you can make it worse. But then there's also, do you, how much do you tell them the truth in terms of, this is the trickiest bit and the bit we want to focus on, I guess, is if you're being completely honest with them, will you remove hope and therefore possibly quality of life? Yeah, so there's two decisions to be made here. It's whether you go for the riskier treatment or the safer bet, but you have a chance of a cure. And then there's how much, how honest are you with them with their outlook? Because if you keep it with more hope and less stats-wise, they might be have a they have a better quality of life. Essentially, yeah. But I, I do think there are so many other elements taken to account. There aren't there because you know you want to manage their expectations. So you want to talk to them about. They've obviously heard about immunotherapy. They think they know a great deal about immunotherapy, and they come in, and you want to be humane about the whole thing so you want to manage their outlook on it and make them realize about the statistics and what they really look like but at the same time like you say there's the hope element to it but then you have to take into account their current mindset so you know there probably is desperation there someone comes in they say I want immunotherapy I'm convinced this thing for me um, and then there's also you know rather brutally an economic element is it worth mm. it from the company or the industry that I'm representing? You know, how do I convince people to really take a swing at engaging in immunotherapy with this person who, you know, perhaps the research there isn't as advanced as we'd like it to be to say that this person stands a good chance or a bad mm. chance. It's a giant risk on both the patient's part and health services part yeah. isn't it yeah. so you know you're put in an incredibly incredibly difficult mm -hmm. position yeah and i guess it's the kind of key thing we wanted to bring to light is uh, that decision making process and how difficult it must be what well, i mean i always think the conversations i mean it's a broadly anyway but in oncology that you have to have about you know you got to give a diagnosis or you're saying you've got 12 months to live kind of thing mm. uh, doing that on a daily basis mm. horrendous Awful, yeah. 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 But then you bring in this stuff where hope is so powerful 
so yeah. powerful. But yeah. how do you handle? Yeah. How do you handle it? I don't know. But hats off to them is basically my conclusion. Yeah, it's very tough. Mm. But that side, I want to end on the positive side of things, which is, so we're talking about the problem here that you raised, the most poignant issue is that only a certain number of people respond to it. Mm -hmm. But the future and the direction of research is how can we identify the people that will respond and the people that won't respond? And there is huge amounts of research going into biomarkers. Mm. So anything you can use as a medical professional to identify a tumor that will respond to immunotherapy, whether that's looking at the, the number of, so they all target different receptors, kind of one of the principal ones is PD-1, PD-L1. Ignore that, yeah. doesn't mean anything, okay. it's just the name of a receptor. They're the breaks. Yeah essentially. Nice. Um, Translated. And so you can kind of look at the expression of that. If there's a high expression, there's a good chance it'll work. If there's a low expression, it might not work. That's mm. the kind of thing they're looking mm. into. And that is, I said, ASCO earlier, American Society of Clinical Oncology, they released their kind of top priorities for the next, I can't remember what it was, three or five years. And the number one was, the number one, one was kind of identifying biomarkers mm therapy, Which will only improve that percentage. Exactly. Because yeah. you get to the point, ideally, where you can take a biopsy, so take some tissue from someone's tumour, or even a blood sample in an even more ideal world. Mm. You can analyse it genetically or metabolites or whatever it may be, and you can be like, okay, for this patient, immunotherapy is going to work. Great. This patient, it's not going to work, but we can go with the old approach, which another point is the old approach, or some of it, we're being very broad again, but it, it acts a bit faster. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't want to waste time waiting to see if immunotherapy will work when you could be treating with another right, aspect. Right. Okay. So, so, yeah. so lifestyle life cycles longer than immunotherapy. It's all very hard, though. I mean, this isn't going to happen anytime soon. I think it's important to point out that biomarkers are very tricky. When you're taking biopsies from tumours, Tumors are very different within themselves. So when you take a biopsy, you're taking one small part of it, and that might not be representative of the whole tumor. And tumors um, mutate constantly over time. So what you take at one point, it might not necessarily be representative. Like Joe said, it takes time, what it's going to be like further down the line. And then you have patient-to-patient -patient variables. So what you do in one person won't necessarily work in someone else with the same type of cancer. So there's so many difficult obstacles in all this. It is. That's why it's a priority. They're kind of going to pump in a lot more research into it, but it's going to be but a battle. We're ending on the positive note. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. There's hope, <laughs> which is powerful and opportunity. And I think heavy, heavy subject. Apologies all, but I think it was. A, I think it was a good one. Um, I think we'll end there, unless any other questions. None whatsoever. No, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Nice. Yeah, I enjoyed you. that conversation. Thank very you. simulating. Thank you, uh, <laughs> oncologist Rob, for your superb <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> treatment. treatment. Qualified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. But yes, thank you all for listening. Please, as always, Twitter, sick of health, get in contact, and we'll <laughs> speak to you next time. See you soon. Cheerio. Sick, so sick, so sick of health.